Welcome aboard the ship that goes beyond the panel. It's the Redenbacher. I'm your captain, Matt Murphy, joined as always by Commander Ben Boyerwell. How's it going, Ben? Matt, I am doing fantastic today. I am so excited. You know, the comic book just came out, came out on the 17th. I bought it as soon as I could on my Kindle. And don't hate me, guys. Uh, yep, on uh, my Kindle. I cannot wait to talk about this, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm excited. It's it's the summer of David, as we have David A. Goodman writing this and David Cabeza, our friend, front of the podcast, uh, drawing the book. So it's going to be a great summer, judging by this first issue. And uh, July's also been a great month for the Orville so far. They got nominated for a Saturn Award, too, I think. And then they also got a Emmy nomination for visual effects, which I think is well earned. The visuals for last season have been amazing. So July just keeps on rolling for fans of the Orville. Oh, hell yeah. And also, uh, a little bit more housekeeping, uh, there's also the Orville experience there at Comic-Con, which is also kind of what our like unofficial subtitle is of the podcast that we've never said on air, but it's in the photograph. So that's cool that uh, you know there's a little uh, connective tissue between the two of us there, but uh, it looks like they've got a lot of amazing stuff there, and there's going to be a panel on the Orville. I don't know if they have enough footage for a teaser trailer. I don't think they've even started production yet. Who knows? But either way, more Orville presence than an event is always a good thing. It's like Orville Christmas. <laughs> or Orville Hanukkah, or whatever. The good things just keep coming. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, without further ado, we've rambled on enough. Uh, let's dive into this amazing comic. Let's look at New Beginnings Part 1. Ba-ba-da-ba. That's right. We can't really uh, get a transmission, so we've just uh, simulated here so we can enjoy it in our current uh, current year here. Absolutely. We've uh, found an ancient copy, and we're not going to leak anything from Part 2, so don't even ask, guys. Yeah, we will probably get the spoilers in this, but I can't stress enough, guys. Go out and buy the book. It's beautifully done. I'd love to see more of these. And it's only four bucks US. So, like, come on. Come on now. It's like the price of, uh, you know, a fancy coffee at Starbucks. Yeah, absolutely. Go get your grande mocha frappuccino. And then you think about it and you're like, well, this could be, uh, you know, this could be an Orville comic book right now. So just don't be cheap. Go buy a couple copies of it. Support the artists. Support, like, the writers. Support the franchise, really. Let's yeah. just just empty, you know, the fry meme. Take my money. It's that kind of situation, <laughs> yeah. guys. This is Ben's first comic. He's a big fan of the show, so he went out and bought it. So if you're missing the Orville in that long wait, it seems like it might be fall 2020 before we get a new episode. This is the perfect way to get the Orville, even if it's not on TV. Absolutely. Like Matt said, um, and like we've talked about in previous episodes, I'm not much of a comic book individual guy, person, whatever. But yeah, like there is no way in hell I was going to miss out on some new content. So here I am with exactly. the comic. Exactly. So it's a new beginning for Ben, and it's a new beginning for the podcast. This is pretty much the uh, Redenbacher Book Club at this point. And uh, <laughs> when I thought of the Redenbacher Book Club, all I could think of, like, imagine if they had, like, a, a book club on the show. There'd be so much more drinking than a regular book club. And usually book clubs <laughs> are just, like, a facade for, like, adults to go and uh, get drunk together anyways and feel like they're, you know, learning as well. But <laughs> now I just want an episode, like, of the Orville crew, like, being part of a book club. Even if it's just, like, one person. I think Dan could shine in that. And, uh, you know, you could just see them, like, Gordon and Lamar try to dare uh, board a seat, like, a corner piece of the book or something. I think that'd be fun. I'd love to see it. It kind of reminds me of uh, of the episode with the cell phone. And they start finding out about the woman's life. And yeah. then uh, the Gordon takes everyone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just That's what I was just thinking sitting there around, flipping through their... Yeah, oh, either way, we've said the idea now, so it can't be used, I guess. So, whatever, I guess. Uh, let's send it to the idea graveyard. Do, do, do. The comic opens up with what appears to be a dream. I think I'm pretty sure it was a dream that Ed has about Kelly. And at first, I was like, really? This is pretty on the nose. This has to be a dream. It can't be this plain. And it was. So, you know, that's good. That's good writing. Yeah, I know. It's the first page. And I was looking at it, and I was like, oh, my God. And then you see, like, the beep, beep, beep by the spilled glass. And guess what, guys? 
it's time to wake up. Your ship <laughs> needs you, Cap Med. Imagine that you want to escape your ex, but you're living on a vessel in space with her. There's no way or that, you know, for Kelly, she's going through the same stuff, whereas she kind of feels a little bad about, uh, you know, her and Ed's breakup and stuff like that. But they're still trapped together and have to deal with the, this dynamic. So it's cool to see this more fleshed out as we uh, see the ship between seasons one and two. Mm-hmm. Season one point five, if I may. Yeah, and we're we're going we're going to break this down into uh, the A story and the B story. So we'll talk about Gordon and uh, and Ed's adventure first, and then we'll get into the uh, Mocklin, Topa, Cassius, Kelly of it all. Mm-hmm. After Ed wakes up from his dream, the Orville crew is looking at a uh, a magnetar, which is uh, like a gigantic magnetic field or whatever, and it's uh, designated AXPIE. 1048-59 so you know it's loved when his parents thought of that great name for it but no gordon, <laughs> gordon mentions like they didn't even name it or whatever i, I love gordon kvetching about the magnetar throughout his story yeah I, I actually like it as well i think gordon plays a really good um like comedic relief in, in this comic so yeah so the magnetar is i guess it's a, a neutron star um and it has like a super highly magnetic field and isaac wants to get some sweet deets about it yeah, Isaac is basically doing a study on it for the full episode. That's like all the Isaac we get on this. I feel like these books, they're going to focus on characters when they can. So it's a four-issue miniseries, and each one is like a two-part story. So I feel like we'll get a lot of Ed and Gordon in this one, and uh, maybe a bit of Kelly. But uh, the next one, I think, is going to focus more on Lamar and engineering. So I think this is like an effective way to tell the story, where some of these complex storylines can't just fit in uh, you know, a 15-minute read. So you might want to draw it out over two issues, and I think this could be a good way of doing it. Yeah, I would agree as well. I'm looking very much forward to, I mean, the cliffhanger. I mean, we'll get to that later. But yeah, I, I cannot wait for the second part to come out. Like, yeah, I am dying. Definitely. Uh, I tweeted David and uh, he said that it's the next issue is coming out next month. So I would have to imagine about four weeks to the day or to the next Wednesday that uh, we'll get the issue in August. And I can't wait. Yeah, I am so much looking forward to it. This is kind of like one of my first real experiences with comic books. And when I got to like page 25, I was just like, what? What? To be continued? What? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's uh, to be continued is like every comic. It never ends unless you're The Walking Dead at issue 193. But <laughs> back to the world of the Orville. As they're dealing with the Magnetar, uh, Kelly uh, reminds Ed that him and Gordon are going off to uh, Post 23 for a tactical conference. And they're speaking about their undercover krill mission that they had in season one. So I really like this world building. It feels like it's a living being where it's like, oh, yeah, this stuff really happened. And this is what would happen if you had someone go undercover with the Krill. You'd be like, hey, these guys are enemy. We have to get as much intel as possible. Yeah, I think it's like super duper cool, actually. After Kelly reminds Ed that him and Gordon are expected um, quite soon at Outpost 23, they kind of get their stuff together. Ed tells Kelly to remain here with Isaac and let him take as much information as he needs. And then they kind of pack up and they are space bound. Not that they're yeah. already not in space, but whatever. Exactly. And it's a nice little flight. I'm sure nothing will happen. We'll just get to the conference and it'll be the end of the issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Pretty bland stuff. I mean... <laughs> Anytime they're in the shuttle, it always seems like like 10, 15 minutes like, afterwards something bad happens. Even if they're in the shuttle for like three hours, they always cut to it. It's like, oh, uh, bad stuff happening. There comes the uh, plasma drive gas or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, it's for, it's for real, man. They've got some bad luck with these little shuttle crafts. Yeah, we see a buoy from the a communications buoy, they're called. I don't know if we've seen these in the show before. And it's from the battleship Burton. So I don't know if that's named after LeVar Burton from TNG or if that's just some other historical figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be a salute, definitely. Um, so this this buoy is um, it's actually putting out a distress call. 
Gordon's like, are we going to go get it? And he's like, well, you know, we do have certain things within the union, certain protocols that despite it being over 100 years old, we have to go check it out. So, da-da-da-da-da. So they go and follow it, and they they find this huge battle scene that they interrupt. Obviously, it looks like the battle that the Burton was involved with did not go well. They mentioned that the battleship itself was lost in a war with the Zell, spelled T-Z-E-L. I'm going to call it the Zell. And they're like these big caterpillar-esque creatures, so uh, I'd love to see more of those. That's one thing that really benefits the comic medium is it's not a matter of whether they can make that costume work or they have the budget. It's whether the artist and the writer can team up together to pull off this amazing design. And from our interview with David, which uh, you can find in our feed, he had to basically get a description of these creatures and then just draw them. So he's as much a creator as the, of these designs as anyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he's, you know, the first person. They're probably just giving him, you know, oh, it's like a caterpillar species kind of thing. You know, just do a couple sketches and we'll kind of work from there. So, yeah, he is quite involved in the development of the Orville universe at this point. And, I mean, I think he's doing a great job. Hats off to you, David. Yeah, definitely. I really love his artwork in this. And he's been really great on Twitter. Give him a follow at uh, Kishin Arai. He's a really cool cat. Uh, one thing I also picture with just with the caterpillars is like each one standing up with like a SMG in each arm, just like firing around. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that won't be the last of the Zell. I really like their ships. Have you noticed their ships? No. Yeah, I, their I, ships are really um, like insectoid looking. They're like slightly in the background of like the... Yeah, I'm looking at them now. There was just a, that cool scene. No, they're really cool. I really liked seeing what other species ships looks like because they have to interface with them in certain ways because they have different kind of body shapes and stuff like that. So that kind of stuff is always interesting. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, that was cool. So Ed and Gordon, as they're flying through the wreckage, they see a planet. It's the only nearby planet with an oxygen atmosphere. So they go down there to search for any survivors because if there were, that's where they would have to go. Hmm, yeah. So Ed and Gordon, like you say, um, they've, they've located like an oxygen-rich atmosphere and the only one that's nearby. So obviously any survivors, like Matt said, would have been there. So Ed and Gordon, they start, you know, plotting their course. They start going closer and closer and they get shot down, losing their engines. I like this. They gave Gordon a chance to show his his piloting skills as he lands. And he's like, do you have to go close to that plateau? And Gordon's like, yeah, if we skim off it, I'll get a safer landing. He's got these like it's almost like like a like a drunk, like frat person trying to head home. It's like, no, no, bro, I, I got it. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. You know, it, it's I love it. Like Gordon, he's not like necessarily book smart, but he just has this natural ability for flying vessels. No, absolutely. I mean, the guy, he, he's pretty much just like, oh, yeah, I'll just like wing it and not like wing it like, you know, I might wing something, but um, he, he's, he's very, very talented as a pilot, and he is able to make very good decisions in literally like super stressful um, situations with really only seconds to really consider it. And turns out, guys, it was a fantastic decision. They're they're safe. Yeah, no, it's uh, it seems like it's not that hard to like land intact in the desert where there's no like huge like you know sturdy objects to smash off of. But it was an impressive landing nonetheless. And this planet, it looks pretty deserty, but there's also elements of, like, war-torn stuff that we see when they walk through villages. They look very uh, uh, emaciated. So is this after the war or maybe the uh, the big planetary battle, all the uh, metal and all the wreckage has come down and ruined the planet's ecosystem? Yeah, it's definitely true. I believe Gordon makes a reference saying if it's, like, could this be, like, a basic nuclear weapon, kind of, like, the aftermath of it, to which... Ed says, well, 
you know, if it was like it wasn't coming from here, like this civilization or this establishment here is far too primitive for for nuclear weaponry. No, exactly. So Ed and Gordon, they they uh, you know they search for whoever shot them down, and they try to make sure that they don't attack any of the survivors if there are any. So they go, they walk through the aforementioned war-torn village, and uh, in the village they find a, a trace of the energy source of whatever it was that shot them down. And they believe they find what they're looking for, and they go over a hill, and then we find my new favorite thing, Thaws, <laughs> and his people. Absolutely. Yeah, I like actually how it happens too, because they like crawl up, they like pull out their phasers, they like kind of like lay there, and then Ed's just like, well, maybe we should ask them, and ta-da, there they are. That's such an Ed move. <laughs> it is totally. It's great. I love the look of Thaws, like a wise penguinish looking bird. Like in space, y- you've got you've got uh, you've got all of my money at that point. I know. I know. I was very startled to see it when you first see them, like kind of looking over the the bank there. They're looking down at the village, like all well, the tent town, really. I guess hey, you just like see like all these like bird like people walking around, and then next thing you know, Thaws is introducing himself, and yeah, they look like I, I don't know. I think it's fantastic. I was definitely not expecting like a kind of like humanoid bird species to say the very least i mean like i I know it is like a science fiction you can really expect the unexpected but this was such a pleasant surprise i love these little buggers they can't really do those on the real show i don't think without just using like full cgi or yeah like the practical effects i think it's a little bit out of the reach unless you're gonna go like full-on like you know, Star Wars and, you know, get a little person to be an Ewok and all those other things. So that's a whole other kettle of fish. And even then, I don't think they can make the costume look as realistic as that. So I think that they would just have to do full CGI. So either way, I don't think we'll see them on the TV show. And if they're just a comic exclusive, I mean, that's a full selling point for the comic right there. Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely a very interesting species. I would like to see them in the show, but like we say, it's very unlikely. So, hey guys, if you want to check out these super cool bird folk, go pick up the comic. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe just have them like save the day in the movie or something like that. But who knows? They might not even be good guys. You never know. You never know in, in this mysterious world. Maybe that might, uh, you know, relate to a theory I have later on. <laughs> There's definitely some uh, Porg vibes I have with these guys. They're from The Last Jedi. Uh, actually, in The Last Jedi, there was puffins on the island that they filmed on, so they couldn't get rid of them for like some environmental reasons. So they just CGI'd them into a creature in the film. These were little like a puffin space, uh, you know, bird looking things. So I do get a lot of pork vibes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I like the porgs, and uh, I think they're different enough that uh, you can say they're totally different. I, I see where you're coming from, though. The porgs. Uh, I mean, just kind of upsize them, maybe a hundred percent. Yeah, I don't know. And, I checked the Orville wiki. We still, there's still no confirmation of what the race is called yet. But I'd like to recommend we call them the Splorks. There's an interesting um, panel, um, and Thaw says, "We have not seen your kind before. What kind of chog are you?" And Ed says, "We're not chogs. We're called humans." So I don't know if chog is their species or if chog could just refer to like a sentient being or any or... humanoid kind of creature. Yeah, that might so it's be a pretty. Whirlwind big umbrella term um, and they say they don't know about war either like war what is that yeah he says he's not familiar with the term um and they also speak english but that's another, that's another <laughs> but all uh, uh you know whatever it, that's the least of our worries here but i don't know i, I don't know uh i'll we'll talk about it in a second once we're, we're we get to the end of the storyline but this could very well be a kalon situation where it's like oh yeah we're so nice come on in and then you know Absolutely. Like, well, look at this. We're, you know, cute little bird people that are chilling here after, like, the, as they refer to it in the, in the comic, they call it the calamity happened. 
Thaw shows and Gordon around his uh, his home and their little settlement there. And uh, Gordon says it's like their own personal March of the Penguins, which was my favorite line, I think. I, I love that. Yeah, I actually cracked up. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, so their, accurate, though. <laughs> their leader might be Morgan Freeman that narrates all their stuff and tells them what to do. You never know. Oh, my God. Just, oh, my God. Fingers <laughs> um, <laughs> crossed, boys. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so we then uh, they offer them some food. It's a uh, meal hall. They ring the large like gong bell that they have there. And then they all walk toward the the ship. And there we see the Burton uh, on the ground. The crashed Burton seems pretty to be pretty intact, not flying around, obviously. But it seems like that their weapon systems are still uh, active because they have a cannon pointed up towards the sky. And it's indicated that that's what shot down the orbital or the shuttle. Mm-hmm. Which is actually... Like, that just, I think Gordon says it best when he goes, well, we've got one answer and a million more questions. That's what issue one's supposed to do, baby. It's It's got me, like, just beyond words. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Like, I don't know. I know Matt has a speculation coming for us, and I bet you it's going to be pretty gosh dang accurate. Well, there's a couple ways to go about it, right? Because is the ship set in some kind of defensive mode where it would just shoot down anything in the sky? I don't think that it would have that kind of feature, although it's a battleship, so I I, I don't know what its settings are. There's also, I get this idea that maybe Thaws isn't so innocent and that this could be just kind of like lure down there where they sent out the beacon. That communication has been around there for forever. We don't know how long it's been out in space. So maybe Thaws kind of sends it out there to lure some people in, pretend to be innocent, and then who knows what happens in the ship. It's definitely true. Um, another thing we kind of have to consider, though, is that they said in, in the shuttle, Ed asked Gordon, he was like, oh, you haven't heard of it? Like, didn't you take history? And he's like, well, I took history, but I wouldn't pay. I didn't read anything. Yeah. Something along those lines. So we know that the Burton crashed, or I, I'm not sure if we knew it crashed at that time, but we knew that the Burton was no longer functional approximately 100 years ago. So unless, and I mean, we don't know a lot about this unknown species that, I mean, I want to call them the the Chog, but again, we don't know if that's actually what they're called um, or if that's like an umbrella term. But yeah, we don't know like their average life expectancy. So it is very possible that Thaws could have, you know, been involved with the war and could have, you know, seen it all. And it's not just like he's a descendant of the people, but he, he could have been there while it happened. I mean, we know in Star Trek that the Vulcans have much longer lifespans than humans, mm. so it could be along the same lines. Who knows? Thaws could be uh, a real baddie, guys. I love the idea of Thaws being like an evil war penguin there. It's very much like a general bird there from Spyro 3, the little penguin that flies with the uh, the army helmet on and stuff like that. I- I'm totally down for that. I think whatever they do with these guys would be great. I'd like to see them be good just so I can like, you know, buy everything with their face on it. But uh, I- I'd like, like to see... shirts and plushies. And... <laughs> yeah. Give me the plushie. Uh, my cosplay is one there. <laughs> but, uh, oh my god. Check out Comic-Con, like, next year, maybe. I am Thaws. Yes. Uh, no, I, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that they could do with this, and I'm really interested to see. Like, we could have, maybe the Krill have told them about how bad humans are, or whatever, or that they're always at war, so maybe you should align with us. You know, I, there's also a little bit of influence in my mind. I'm almost done the Thrawn trilogy in uh, Star Wars from the early 90s, and they've got a similar storyline with a species that's um, that's being taken advantage of by the Empire, and they don't really show how it's done until a on and it's explained. I really like that idea of, like, what happens when there's these big intergalactic battles and the planet beneath has to suffer from all the wreckage and what might come of it. I like that element. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Another thing that I, I kind of noticed 
is Ed and Gordon, they point out that there's, like, no water source or anything like that. No, like, electricity, really. Yeah. Um, and then they find the ship. So I'm going to say that these penguin bird folk, I'm going to say they're using the replicator somehow to get water from that ship. That's a good guess. That's a good guess. Another thing could be that they're shapeshifters, kind of like um, in the cage there, where they presented the most flattering form to the humans. They weren't shapeshifters, but they could make a project an image. So maybe mm-hmm. it's something like that, where it's like, it's the most unassuming thing, and they never heard of war, yada, yada. And then, you know, now you meet the real big boss who's actually really evil and was just manipulating you. So you never know. It, c- it could really be anything. But I do think your simulator idea or the synthesizer idea, I mean, would be, you know, pretty accurate as to how they're getting water or any sustenance at all. Mm-hmm, because, I mean, it's a barren wasteland, like, I mean, we don't get to see a whole lot of it, but we don't really see any any vegetation at all, we don't see any water, we don't see any wildlife. I mean, I'm not going to call the penguin people wildlife, like, they're uh, intelligent species, but, like, yeah, we don't, we don't see anything, like, no birds in the sky. All we really know is that, yeah, like, the planet has oxygen, and it's very barren, and these people are tenting out here. Yeah, I, I love Gordon. It's like, oh, I, I now I missed the Magnetar and all that stuff. And he was basically, <laughs> yeah. like, no matter what he's doing, whatever else is more interesting for him. It's like, oh, I could see, like, I don't know why he doesn't want to do the speech there about the uh, the infiltration of the Krill. He'd be like a hero there. He'd be a big deal because they really went in there and, you know, fooled their biggest enemy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I also love it when, uh, like, they just keep talking on the shuttle there. And Ed's like, Hey, like I, I thought you said that you hated public speaking or whatever. And he's like, oh, I do, but like I, I'd rather that than like the magnetar. And then he continues, and he's like, well, hey, wait a minute. Like I thought you said you were excited to go do like the conference. And he's just kind of like, I lied. And he just has like this really cheeky look on his face. I love it. I want the uh, the magnetar to be the thing that saves the day. So like at the end of the day, the Orville like comes pulling the magnetar behind it and it pulls the Burton off the ground or something. They go, oh, the magnetar. I'd be cool magnetar. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a kind of shitty. But if that that is the actual ending, uh, that's it's good. Mm-hmm. That's about it for our A story. I think that's a really cool cliffhanger. But the B story, there's a lot more filling in the blanks between season one and two than I ever expected, especially from one issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what they've done with 25 pages, maybe in in total, like three paragraphs of of dialogue. Yeah, it's like we've we've gotten a lot of answers and we're about to unravel a great mystery for you guys. Exactly. In the B story, it takes place mostly on, well, completely on the Orville dealing with, uh, you know, Kelly's taking command and uh, they're dealing with the Magnetar and a new issue where during a conversation that Dr. Finn and Kelly are having about uh, her and Ed's breakup, Bordis interrupts asking if Topa can start school despite only being a few months old. Yeah, Topa is eight months old at this point in time. So obviously Kelly and, well, it's not really Kelly's place to talk right now, but uh, like Claire, she's she's pretty baffled she's like what are you talking about like you know Topa's only eight months old like you can't enroll in school until you're at least three years old i I know right there bordis says that clyden's getting irritable just kind of having to like entertain um topa all the time and then kelly kind of like looks around the corner and she's like oh my god who is that and it's our boy topa everyone's been kind of asking this or i've seen a lot online of going how's topa so big by season two and I wondered that, too, and we finally get an explanation. So I think, like, the comic is really integral to, like, the greater narrative of the Orville to learn these small little details and these interesting facts about all our species. And we learn that the Mocklins develop quicker because they need to. It's, we know Mocklis is a terrible environment, so the most evolved of their species grow really quickly in childhood because their planet's so deadly. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just the evolution of the species, you know? The quicker you mature, 
the more likely are to survive. The ones that mature slowly don't survive. So, but up, but up, but Mocklins grow like wicked fast, like tomato plant fast. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like one of those sponges, you pour water in it, and then you have a brontosaurus in your closet. There, it's uh, for a really obscure <laughs> reference there. But no, it, it's really cool to, to see that little detail, and it makes Mocklins seem all that more much more harsh. I'd love to see like a full episode on Mocklins. I know a lot of people kind of think there's a lot of too much Mocklin drama, and I think season two did have a lot of that, but I think it it, it played out uh, pretty well near the end. But I'd like to see more of Mockless just to see what is it that's so hard. Like, they have no environment. Are there, like, dangerous animals they have to run from? Like, I'd love to see more. And I think if the comic continues, that eventually we should get uh, a Mockless storyline. Yeah, I'd very much like to know more about Mockless. I'd like to see more about Mockless. Uh, one thought I had is uh, maybe there might be something to do with uh, the gender change that they give, um, or the, the sex change that they give, the uh, Mockless females. Maybe... There's something about testosterone that they think might help them mature faster. I don't know if that has to do with it or just a full disrespect of the female culture. Like, who knows? I think that there there's a lot that they can do with Mockless. And I feel like that there's a grand reveal that we're going to get at some point about uh, what made their people the way they are, more so than just a harsh terrain. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of stuff to do with the Mocklins, and I, I think we're going to see more of them and not less. One guy that I didn't expect to see so soon is our, our old friend Cassius. And of course, he's the teacher at the school, which is what this whole storyline revolves around. And Kelly and Cassius, we see their first meeting. And of course, they get in a fight over whether Topa should be allowed in class. And this is a classic Trek philosophical argument of physically they are this age, but by our you know human standards, they aren't that proper age. Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, Cassius is very much of the opinion that, you know, Topa is just simply not like eligible based on age kelly kind of starts talking to him about their biology and how mocklins develop so much faster and cautious says something and like oh so you're giving me a lecture about mocklin biology one of which he, he really did need because obviously kelly <laughs> yeah. is like not not to like belittle cautious um but like for real he's like an elementary teacher meanwhile she's like a commander so yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I I love to see like a prog rock band called uh, Mocklin Mocklin Biology. I think that'd be pretty sweet. But uh, oh yeah, that would be something else, buddy. We'll we'll see where we go. But uh, I, I was just looking at this panel there of showing all the kids in the class, and uh, I just thought, like, imagine how cool it would be to go to school on a freaking spaceship. Like, how awesome would that be? And then there was one of the kids, he just saw the back of his head. He looked like a young Brainiac. who was a, a big Superman villain. I liked uh, Davis designs. I just remember, like, that one kid who's, like, gasping. Uh, it's in, like, the panel, like, right after Kelly pretty much says, like, put Topa in this class. And Cautious is like, I'm going to report you to, or I'm going to file a complaint to the uh, Board of Education. And Kelly's like, ooh, the Board of Education. And the kid's just like, oh, snap. Like, our teacher just <laughs> got ripped apart. Like, Yeah, he's going to get ripped out. He lost all the respect to the kids. Like, in that very yeah. moment, he's done. He's done. He's pretty much a sub now. It's like, Yeah, go substitute on other ship. Cassius eventually admits to Kelly that she was right, saying that Topa did great in his first class, which, you know, a lot of terrible kids could do great in their first class and like, go kill someone in the next. No, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't expect them to have a fight in their first encounter and then start dating, but it looks like that's pretty much where we're headed. Yeah, I kind of noticed that, too. I thought about it because I was like, you know, you kind of like get into it with someone on your first meeting. Chances are, you know, people tell me that uh, uh, first impressions are a pretty big deal. Obviously, you guys love us. That's why you're still sticking around after episode one. Anyway. Um, Hopefully, we left a lasting impression on our first impression. <laughs> well said. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting. They kind of uh, 
are first introduced in kind of a disagreement. Cautious comes back and, you know, he's all like, oh, Kelly, like you were right. Like Topa did great. Like, I guess I did need a lecture on uh, Mocklin biology. And, you know, he kind of leaves. Yeah. And uh, I like this interaction. It's nice. We get to see Alara. She's still on the ship as it takes place before season two. And uh, it's always great to see her and uh, her and Kelly are talking and Alara suggests that she asks Cassius out and Ke- Kelly says that she doesn't want to date aboard the Orville. And, and then Alara asks, what's your plan? Did, did she try and say uh, celibate the whole time? And then you see like Kelly's shocked face like she's never considered this ever. <laughs> and it yeah. kind of makes sense as to why they're dating. It, it's kind of explained. It's like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Just be like a hermit? You, you may as well uh, date on the ship. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, she's like... So, like, and you plan to stay on the ship for quite a while, right? And she's like, well, yeah, if everything goes good. And she's like, so what's your plan? To stay celibate the whole time? And, like, Kelly, yeah, like you say, she's just shocked. She's like, oh, my God, wait a minute, not getting any? Like, for years? <laughs> like, Yeah, that's, like, the last we see ever in that issue is that revelation. Like, oh, jeez. It, like, <laughs> well, it's true. It's not like you're running, like, a monastery there where everyone stays celibate on the ship. I mean, you know, look at Gordon. I mean, Lamar's had his exploits. I mean, your doctor's <laughs> hooking up with uh, what would be appliances on some other planets. So, you know, you're really, you know, it, it, the sky's the limit as far as hookups on the ship. It's the weirdest ship in the fleet. You can't stay celibate for that. No, you definitely can't. I, I, I love this first issue. I, I'd give it a solid four out of five. I think that there's higher heights to reach. They had to establish a lot of stuff. But once we really get a, a storyline cooking, I think that this comic is really going to unleash. So really good start, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what they've done with, you know, 25 pages, like they've answered a lot of questions that we've had going into season two. It's, it's just been like fantastic. Like I, like we've said, I'm not a comic book person. But I think I might be slowly transitioning into one if the Orville keeps up this. Like, who knows? Dark Horse publishes a Wisher comic as well, so, you know. Ooh, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, um, it's funny. We interviewed David, and he was saying, uh, David uh, Cabeza, of course, not David A. Goodman yet, but uh, David Cabeza was saying that Gordon was the hardest person to draw, and I think he did a great job, and you did really capture that that twinkle in Gordon's eye. Like, in the cover, he's got that nice little smile, and I think that Gordon was probably the, the best rendered character of them all, if you ask me, as far as feeling, just like he, he pops out of the book. Like, it's really, it's Gordon. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I think, I mean, like, David has done a fantastic job, even on what he said was the hardest part. He, he absolutely hit the nail right on the head. I think he's captured Ed's character very well as well. Mm-hmm. Like, just like the banter that Ed and Gordon have on the shuttle. I, like, I could almost hear their and voices the in my head. And like, yeah, the expressions just, just, it really, it really brought the the characters to life. Yeah, and David Goodman's script was was great. It, it really feels like it's an episode of the show, which I'd expect nothing less, as he's a writer as well as an executive producer for the show. So it felt like a piece of the show. And I imagine him and Seth and a lot of the other writers have like mapped out where the book is going to go and like what kind of stuff they want to touch on uh, and fit it in with season two. And I really hope that we get an in-betweener for uh, season two and season three. That'd be great. Yeah, that would be fantastic, actually. I, I'd very much like it... Um, maybe if it's possible before season three instead of combing back we got time right like i think we have like a full summer so they could really do it next year so i think that there's ample opportunity and that only happens if we go and buy the books so i'm gonna buy at least one issue one copy of every issue Mm-hmm. i saw on your instagram you copped three copies of the first one yeah like beautiful 
Yeah, Beautiful. the guys at my uh, LCS were cool enough to let me have uh, have three uh, really good shop that we have here in Nova Scotia called Stranger Things, or not Stranger Things, called uh, Strange Adventures. It's a cool shop. They've got them in like uh, Halifax, Dartmouth, and uh, New Brunswick. If you're uh, in the east coast of Canada, listeners, a good spot to check out. And no, it was it was a great experience getting an extra Orville story in the summer when I thought we'd have to wait a long time for another. So um, I really enjoyed it cannot wait for the next one and uh we'd love to hear your feedback if you guys have any questions let us know uh at the redenbacher on twitter instagram is uh, at the redenbacher so uh we're, we're around we're on the interwebs we have a facebook page the redenbacher ben recently got hacked on facebook so you never know what we're gonna find on the feed there on the, <laughs> on the redenbacher facebook page so uh yeah take everything with a grain of salt boys if it's posted <laughs> yeah. by me anyway yeah exactly so uh anything you want to say about the comic this comic has really opened a, uh, a new medium for me. Never really been into comic books, but I've absolutely loved it. And like you say, it's been a wonderful little sprinkle of the Orville throughout my month. Season 3, highly anticipating its launch. And I cannot wait to read the rest of these comics. That's something I never thought I'd really say. Exactly. It's a out of character, but oh my god, guys, I am itching for part 2. Yeah, I can't wait. And uh, I think they set up uh, a great storyline. And, you know, the, the Thaws and his his people are, are enough for me to, you know, you know, the, the comic is worth it just for that. So it, it's all Absolutely. it's all roses from here. So with that, from the Cinemaster Cluster for Ben Bullerwell, this is Captain Matt Murphy signing off.